Welcome to episode 92 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by two guest commentators, Ellen Nakashima, the reporter for uh, the Washington Post, who has covered uh, cyberspace in depth for several years, uh, and Tony Cole, Cole, who is the global government CTO with FireEye, uh, uh, one of the premier security companies uh, um, doing cybersecurity. Uh, uh, so welcome, Ellen. Thank you. It's good and to be welcome, Tony. Thank you very much. Yes, this uh, Ellen. Ellen reminds me she's uh, she's returning uh, 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 against her better judgment uh, <laughs> uh, to uh, uh, to talk about uh, uh, the news of the day. We'll be talking about uh, uh, several stories she broke on China and uh, uh, the changing cyber uh, espionage uh, uh, climate. Uh, also uh, with us today is Maury Shank, uh, formerly a managing partner in our London office and now advising us on European technology and cybersecurity issues. He also uh, is a private e- equity investor and a director of technology companies. Welcome, Maury. Uh, good to be here, Stuart. And uh, we've been wanting to get you on for a while, so I'm pleased you could do this. Uh, uh, we've also got uh, Michael Vadis, formerly, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office, Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, uh, now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's let's jump in. Last time we, um, uh, the last episode, it turned out that food became a, a, a theme throughout the discussion, uh, uh, and so I I think we really have to lead off with the fact that the cannibal cop uh, beat the rap uh, in the uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, and uh, while we don't usually cover cannibalism, uh, uh, he beat a rap for violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, uh, and uh, um, how he beat it uh, is uh, an interesting story. Uh, uh, Jason, uh, uh, how did he do this? Okay, well, I hesitate to call whatever he was doing food, but uh, this is the weirdest uh, application of the of the debate over the exceeds authorized access provision in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that we have seen. We've seen employees who steal information from their employers when they're going to go get another job, but this is the first time we've seen it in the context of cannibals, let alone cannibal cops. So they, they, uh, as as folks who followed the case will know, there was a New York City cop who was convicted two years ago for conspiracy to kidnap, rape, and cannibalize multiple women. The conviction was overturned for insufficient evidence, except for the CFA charge. And and he appealed, and the Second Circuit has now thrown that charge out, too. And the, the charge was that he looked up women uh, in the uh, various uh, Law enforcement database, right, uh, that he had access to as part of his job, but that he exceeded the authorized access by using Which it for... Which is he wasn't, he wasn't authorized to eat them. Right, yeah. right. You're at least not authorized to look them up for the purpose of eating them. Right. Um, that was, by any measure, uh, exceeding his authorized access. And the Second Circuit threw the, case, the the charge out and said that he did have access, so he didn't exceed his authorized access. He used it for a, an illegitimate purpose, but that that wasn't uh, the same as exceeding access. And the Second Circuit used a, a, a favorite analogy of EFF and, and some of those groups when it said that uh, allowing a case like this to proceed would also allow prosecutors to go after an employee for checking their Facebook page at work. Fantasy football scores, which I do several times a week, is is another awkward example. Um, and so now you've got a widening split. You've got the second now joining the Ninth Circuit in, in drawing a, a very narrow uh, view of that provision. As a practical matter, DOJ is not bringing cases under that provision right, uh, right now because the law is so unsettled. But, you know, Michael may want to jump in, too. But this is just the, the strangest application of it. And now you've got a, a court that I think some take more seriously than the Ninth. Uh, in this area, joining the ninth um, in, in in this very narrow interpretation of the law, Michael. Yeah, the, uh, two interesting things that, that struck me. One, the, the basis for the decision was the rule of lenity, uh, which means that the court said, "Look, you could read this the the exceeds authorized access wording two different ways." Um, and because this is a criminal application, it's a criminal statute. The tie goes to the defendant, and so we're going to read read the provision narrowly. Uh, so that it can't be used against someone who is authorized to access a system but then uses that access for some uh, inappropriate purpose. What I think the court missed is that this case was actually different from 
the typical cases where somebody is authorized to access information but then uses the information for an improper purpose. Here, the rules of the database specifically said you may not access this database except for appropriate government purposes. So he actually didn't have authorization to access the database. And the court just ignores that fact. Well, my memory is that EFF makes the argument, and I think maybe Oren Kerr has made this argument, that there needs to be some kind of actual technical barrier that you surmount before you should be held liable here. Well, that may be a good policy, but that's not what the statute requires. Right. The statute says to exceed authorized access, you're in violation. And so I can understand the motivation for people to want to put more requirements into the statute because they don't want to go after Jason for checking his fantasy football scores. But, you know, I think it involves a very narrow reading of the term, and it's policy-driven. And, you know, ultimately Congress is going to have to resolve this unless the Supreme Court steps in. Now that we have a very deep circuit split, you know, I think we're up to about six circuits that have addressed this and come out on both sides. Well, I was glad to see the rule of lenity make its appearance in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act context because that's what I'm going to be relying on when I defend the first guy who does a hackback on the theory that if you're going to get your own stuff, you are authorized or close enough for the rule of lenity to get you off. So I like the opinion for that reason, if for no other. I love when conservatives love the rule of lenity. It's true. It's true. All right. Well, speaking of things that conservatives love and don't love, we ought to talk about the safe harbor, which, as everybody knows, was struck down by the European Court of Justice and is now in negotiations between the U.S. and Europe to try to come up with a mechanism that will restore the limited approval for transatlantic data transfers. Maury, there's a lot of action around this and a lot of conflicting stories about how well the negotiations are going, but we're doing it against the January deadline. So what's your current betting on whether the negotiators are going to finish by December 31? I'd bet against it. I think the hardest issue is that the court decision against the safe harbor and a lot of the European concerns relate to U.S. surveillance legislation, and the U.S. can't give away that surveillance legislation. Data that comes to the United States is subject to government access, and that issue hasn't been resolved, and I don't see it being resolved by January in a way that's going to create a safe harbor that's proof against court challenge. So let me challenge that a little because it was pretty clear that the ECJ had no clue how our intelligence programs worked. Not surprisingly, they didn't take any evidence because they don't seem to think that matters in court cases. And if you actually understood the facts of 702, you could make a reasonable argument that it does meet those standards, certainly well enough to take the case back to force the case to go back through the courts. And my impression is that the European Union doesn't intend to ask for legislative changes, which means that they are essentially accepting glosses and mechanisms for ensuring that the interpretation they've been given is actually carried out. And if that's the case, they ought to be able to negotiate something. Yeah, I think that's right about the position of the European Commission, and it puts the European Commission in the interesting position of defending U.S. surveillance legislation against more active privacy voices in Europe. Well, it's about time they've been free riding on our intelligence counterterrorism programs for years. And it's possible we could get there that direction, although there was this interesting story this week from the Dutch 
think the Dutch justice minister in the, the Netherlands is about to take over the presidency of the EU, so he'll have some more influence saying this issue, this core issue of U.S. legislation really hasn't been addressed. Yeah, I thought so, that, and he ought to know because you know they have to tell him this is what's going to be on your plate on January one, and if he he obviously thinks it's going to be on his plate. Yeah, so um, you know your point of view is not unreasonable, but I just don't see us getting there. There's not even I haven't heard of a concrete proposal on the table for what a new safe harbor would look like, and Europe kind of shuts down in a, two weeks. So we don't have a lot of time. And meanwhile, uh, Max Schrems, the guy who brought the case to the ECJ, has launched a new case uh, challenging uh, Facebook's uh, use of, I think, binding corporate rules for its transfers. Uh, uh, and there are plenty of people who think that whatever was wrong with the safe harbor is probably wrong with uh, binding corporate rules. Yeah, that is really interesting, I think, because – the situation on the ground with our clients is not quite as bad as some of the rhetoric is because at least for companies maybe um, that are doing business services and Facebook, which is doing a consumer services, Shona can do it as well. Binding corporate rules isn't a bad solution. And so I don't hear a lot of people whose business models are in crisis yeah. um, over this if they can use binding corporate rules. But if binding corporate rules gets taken away, we are in a genuinely dangerous situation for transatlantic data. But that won't, that won't happen for years. I mean, this, is, this litigation also has to go through the courts. And uh, uh, this time, my bet is uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the defendants are going to insist on a actual factual uh, development of the record rather than a quickie uh, uh, referral to the ECJ with no, with no record. I, I think, uh, according, according to Schrems' complaint, at least, um, yeah, uh, he says Facebook is relying on standard contractual clauses. I don't know if he's wrong on that. Or, oh, okay. Um, As opposed oh, to binding corporate. Maybe they're relying on both. Some of the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, prescriptions are inaccurate. Fair enough, my, my, Michael. I, I, miss, I sort of conflated the two. Uh, the standard contractual clauses are the ones that are the most valuable and that most of our clients are using. You're absolutely correct. And, uh, and I think he's challenging both of them, actually. Yeah, I think I think he means to challenge whatever they're relying on, but his complaint, at least uh, as I read it quickly, um, I think only references standard contractual clauses, unless he's just using that to uh, to refer to uh, BCRs as well. And this is also in Ireland. Yeah, this is he's, he's revised his complaint in Ireland. Now maybe he's maybe he's challenged BCRs. I know he's made complaints in other countries to which I haven't read. I saw some reporting that he was challenging BCRs as well, but I, you know, Stuart, your point that the complaint will take a long time to go through the courts, but the EU's w, Working Party 29 has intimated that some of the other ones may be invalid as well, and if they come out with a statement to that effect, it won't be binding, but it might take some of the more privacy-protective uh, EU countries in the direction of prohibiting data flows. Or at least... So the, it's a pretty fluid environment. Yeah, I, I think you're right for people who um, decide to find a new basis for their uh, uh, data transfers. It may be harder to get uh, approval in some of the more aggressive uh, uh, DPAs uh, uh, for those clauses. So, yeah, I think... Uh, but it's a slow-moving crisis, uh, that is my guess. Uh, um, all right, well, if, if, if the crisis is moving slowly, then we can be sure sure that the European bureaucracy will move more slowly than that, and that argues for not uh, having anything done by January 1. Um, meanwhile, uh, you know, uh, not to talk out of both sides of their mouth or anything, the EU is also saying tech companies have to do more to enable surveillance and uh, uh, take an offensive against ISIS propaganda. Uh, uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, uh, Pakistan's gotten in the act by uh, uh, telling BlackBerry they're going to have to close down. So the the pressure from governments, while there's pressure on the privacy front, there's also pressure to increase surveillance. At least that's that's how I'm reading it. Uh, uh, Michael, am I getting this right? Yeah, that's the way I'm reading it. You know, if, if you were wondering why you woke up with a crick in your neck, it may be from whiplash from following uh, European debates over security and privacy because, you know, we spent the last – couple of years getting beaten up by the Europeans over U.S. surveillance and, and uh, lack of protection of, of private information. And now European countries are pressing uh, communications firms to 
you know, unlock encryption to uh, surveil Facebook and Twitter users to, to see if they're engaging in uh, spreading propaganda for uh, ISIS. Uh, it, you know, it's just it's hard to keep track of where Europe stands these days on, on surveillance and, and privacy. I guess it's, it's not news that they have no problem restricting free speech. Uh, that, you know, that's always been the case, but, but it's the, the constant changing based on, you know, recent events uh, on where they stand on privacy that, that becomes just hard to, hard to follow. And I, 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 I didn't watch the speech last night that the president gave on terrorism, but my memory is, uh, based on the coverage, he might have said something a little like this himself, that the tech companies are going to have to do a better job of uh, dealing with the threat of uh, radical, uh, uh, radicalization on, uh, uh, online. Yeah, and I think he, you know, he's, uh, President-elect Clinton has also made the uh, the same statements. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I spoke. To <laughs> yeah, I, I I I think you may be uh, at least four years too early on that one. <laughs> no, but she 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 made a speech even before uh, President Obama's last night, uh, making the the same argument. Um, it's interesting that that's that that's such a focus now. I think uh, you know people are. Are really trying to come up with new ideas to go after a, a terrorist threat that is amorphous, where you've got people who are acting on their own, who are motivated by ISIS, but but are not taking instructions by by any means. And so, how do you get it at them? Well, you can engage in you know a total surveillance state sort of uh, set of activities, and you can also go after their propaganda, which I think is probably less controversial to a lot of people. Yeah, uh, at, at a minimum, I, I, I guess uh, you may not have followed this, but there are security problems in the Internet Barbie. Uh, uh, so it turns out you can intercept. Uh, Barbie now has uh, cloud intelligence so that when it talks to your kids, it can uh, pull things from the cloud and offer advice. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, part of the advice will be, uh, no, don't strap that to your body and blow yourself up, please. Uh, uh, that's a bad idea. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to see all kinds of people offering uh, uh, a wide variety of counter-radicalization uh, um, uh, techniques. Uh, uh, but the leverage that the government has over, over these folks is actually, if anything, it's kind of eroding as we continue to see new um, decisions come out. Uh, uh, saying, you know, you've got more liability immunity than people originally thought. Uh, um, there were a couple of cases that came down. Uh, one was uh, when a cable company could be held liable for actions on the uh, 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 on its network and uh, um, rejecting privacy claims uh, uh, against uh, internet companies based on the Wiretap Act. Uh, and I know, Jason, Michael, you guys looked at both of those cases, right? Uh, yes, we did. Um, you know, it's, it, both uh, the cable company and uh, and Facebook had good days in court. Yeah. Um, for, for different reasons. Um, in the cable company case, it was a, a case in which Time Warner uh, was responding to a grand jury subpoena in a child porn investigation, and they gave information on the wrong subscriber Ooh, that's uh, to terrible. the government. Um, and the subscriber sued for a violation of the Stored Communication Act, um, uh, which which prohibits a company or provider from knowingly disclosing subscriber information to the government without lawful process. The district court found, uh, and the Sixth Circuit agreed, that the mistake was the definition of not knowing it was inadvertent there would they, be no they had dropped a digit if i remember yeah right. exactly exactly so ignorance of the law may be no excuse but ignorance of the facts is um and michael i, I don't know if you want to talk about the facebook uh the facebook case um yeah facebook case was interesting because it, it's another example where plaintiffs relied on this theory that um that their personal information has some monetary value and so if uh, a communications company, in this case Facebook, uh, somehow uh, makes inappropriate use of that information, it's it's depriving the uh, the owner of that information of some part of the monetary value. And and some courts have accepted that theory in different contexts. It, you know, sometimes in data breach cases, sometimes in uh, claims involving a wiretap act or the SCA. In this case, the court said, nah, that's 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 just not concrete enough to establish Article III standing um, because you haven't offered any allegations about the marketability of your information, what it's what it's actually worth uh, in any concrete way. 
So I think this is an interesting issue that's going to continue to come up as plaintiffs advance this theory in different contexts and courts are reaching different decisions on it. Isn't that one of – that was a case where Congress had said it's $10,000 per violation, sort of a liquidated damages provision, or am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think for some of the claims that might be right. I'm just sort of – I hate to say bad things about a case that says there's no liability, but it strikes me as pretty odd for the courts to say Congress can't say we think this is harmful and we're going to assess a harm, and for the courts to say, oh, well, we have a different view, so we're not going to even entertain the lawsuit, just seems like an odd way to apply our Article III standing rules. I love this, man. First you're in favor of the rule of lenity, and now you're in favor of broad standing for people who make claims to bring suits. Yeah, what can I say? I guess I went to law school too long ago. This is the April Fool's Day broadcast. We're just doing it early. But, you know, I think your point is an excellent one, and it brings up a much broader question, I think, about standing doctrine, which is can Congress make findings that affect a court's determination of whether Article III standing has been met? Can Congress say we think this sort of damage should be cognizable for Article III standing purposes? And that's another issue I think that has troubled the courts and ultimately is going to go to the Supreme Court, maybe not in this context but in other contexts. All right. Well, I did promise Jason that we'd give him one opportunity to say something snarky about the longest standing debate in Congress over computer issues, which is whether to change ECPA's standards for when you need a warrant to get content. That debate has been going on forever, and it looks like everybody who wants to keep the rule as it is is counting on the FTC and the SEC to pull their chestnuts out of the fire, right? Yeah. I don't believe in a copy today because I knew I was going to talk about this and it was going to get me aggravated. If I had a dollar, if I got paid by the ECPA hearing when I was in the government, I wouldn't be sitting here with you because I could have retired. And every breathless headline we get announcing to people that the government can currently theoretically read their e-mails without a warrant is as if someone just broke the story is also kind of ridiculous. This is a non-debate from a criminal law enforcement point of view because since 2010, when the Warsaw decision came down in the Sixth Circuit, all the providers started following the Sixth Circuit and imposing a warrant for all content requirement, at least when it comes to law enforcement. And as soon as the first provider started doing that, all of them followed suit. And so DOJ has consistently, as just a practical matter, had to accept a world in which you need a warrant for all content, has not been able to rely on the 180-day rule. And as recently as March of 2013, a month or two before I joined the firm, DOJ formally announced that it was not going to object to Congress imposing a standard like that. As you said, the only entities that are carrying the banner for some exception to the warrant requirement are the SEC, the FTC, and actually it should be Congress because Congress doesn't have warrant authority either. And this was Ceresny v. Salgado too. They could save everybody a lot of time and money if they just videotaped themselves talking about the issue and just played it for different congressional committees. But they keep dragging Andy Ceresny from the SEC and Rick Salgado, who we know well from Google, down to hearing after hearing so everybody can hear him say the same thing. And there are 300-plus sponsors for the bill on the House side. There are a ton of sponsors on the Senate side for the Senate version of it. And the only people fighting it are the SEC and the FTC. And the fact that Congress can't adopt a rule like that when there is such limited opposition to it or alternatively create an exception to the warrant requirement that actually requires probable cause but under the form of a different type of process. If the SEC and FTC don't have warrant authority but you want them to be held to the same standard that criminal law enforcement authorities are, then just create a new order. A probable cause subpoena. Exactly, exactly. Or a different subpoena process that effectively does what the SEC does now, which is give people notice and give them an opportunity to challenge it before they actually execute it. So this is just a non-debate. And the irony, going back to our discussion about the safe harbor, is one of the reasons why U.S. companies have had so much trouble historically, even pre-Snowden, 
communicating to uh, customers, potential customers in Europe, that the rules in the United States for government access, for criminal law enforcement access, are actually stricter, is because they were so complicated to explain. And and providers and and have said for years that if there was a warrant for all standard in the law, it'd be a much easier explanation to to foreign audiences. And yet Congress can't even do that. All right. Well, it is remarkable how long that's been going on, Uh, uh, almost as long as uh, Chinese cyber espionage, which is what we're going to be talking to uh, Ellen Nakashima and Tony Cole about. Uh, uh, Ellen broke a lot of these uh, stories recently, uh, saying essentially that – the PLA has gotten out of the commercial cyber espionage business. Uh, and Ellen, do you want to just kind of recap what uh, what your story said? Yeah, uh, well, actually, I didn't say it's gotten out of it entirely. In fact, the PLA has not stopped all commercial spying, but it has, my sources tell me, scaled back. Um, now, at the same time, my understanding is that the civilian side of the PLA, the Ministry of uh, State Security, the MSS, their hackers have continued or maybe even increased their level of hacking activity in mm-hmm. commercial cyber espionage. So what you see here is a sort of a shift maybe from the PLA or the military side to the civilian side. What's behind? It's a little like moving from NSA to the FBI, I think. (laughs) Or, yeah, FBI slash DHS? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a whole chill. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Um, Now, I don't believe there's any one reason behind this change in behavior, but rather I think it's a confluence of a series of of moves um, by the administration to include the indictments, yes, in May 2014, uh, and the sort of consistent series of of, um, bilaterals and messages from Obama to President Xi Jinping and Susan Rice to her counterparts over the last year and a half, two years Mm -hmm. at various, um, you know, summits and bilateral meetings to really convey that cyber economic espionage is something that the United States will not abide by. Um, And then you've seen earlier this year, uh, the Obama administration was preparing a package of economic sanctions to impose on Chinese entities, uh, companies that were said to have benefited by the uh, commercial hacking. I think all of those things taken together, along with some maybe diplomatic moves, maybe even some efforts by DHS, uh, have combined to really convey to the Chinese that this is this is behavior that, as one senior administration official told me, we're really pissed off about, and uh, that the United States is willing to um, to do something about, to hold them accountable. Okay, so it, if if nothing else, it persuaded them that this was not just business as usual, but right. it was going to be a continuing irritant at very high levels in the government. Uh, uh, now. Uh, it does seem to me that if I were the administration, if I were in the White House, I would be spinning this as a great victory for a hard-nosed, tough uh, uh, right. a policy by uh, uh, by the Obama administration. Uh, um, and I guess uh, maybe I'll ask Tony and then come back to uh, uh, to you, Ellen. Uh, um, if the PLA had ramped back its uh, uh, cyber espionage in private companies. Would we know, and what would it look like? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Stuart. And I will tell you that um, we wouldn't know initially. I mean, it's going to take some time for us to compile the data and actually watch many of the other indicators of compromise to see if they are ramping back. And not only that, uh, I think it's important to note that a compromised system is a compromised system. You know, the malware is out there. It's active. I mean, whether they're still exfiltrating data, you know, is a different story. Well, I always thought that, you know, uh, it was really hard to spot uh, the compromise, but it was easier to spot the uh, exfiltration, that uh, we had better instrumentation on outbound communications so that if exfiltration goes down, we ought to know it, shouldn't we? 
It, we should know, but keep in mind that, uh, you know, it really depends upon the level of sophistication of the attack. So, right. and, and what sophistication they have to hide in specific mechanisms. I mean, we've seen some with command and control being utilized through Twitter, uh, GitHub, and Dropbox, you know, right. so they're hiding in normal streams of traffic, making it much more complex to find the data being exfiltrated. Yeah, that, well, that does make sense. And, but, um, have you seen, um, a decline in exfiltration that you can spot? Uh, have you seen a decline in uh, new infections that might be, that use the, the tools and tactics that the PLA used in the past? Well, it's, it's still difficult to ascertain because what we're looking to do is compare many of those indicators of compromise, the tools and such, you know, with current activity taking place. And right. as Ellen talked about, is that coming from the MSS or potentially MSS contractors? And it takes an awful lot of data to actually start to indicate, you know, similar patterns in that data uh, okay. that, all right, so here's a PLA member maybe that actually has been fired. We don't see the large PLA organizations doing this activity. Has he now been picked up or she is a contractor by MSS? Uh, so you he's know. using exactly the same tools and tactics and, exactly. and even some of the same dumb mistakes. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Ellen, what... What was the evidence that the administration pointed you toward to the um, uh, idea that uh, there's been a reduction in this? Did they say they've seen technical signs that it's reduced, uh, uh, or was this just a, uh, an impression from, uh, well, actually, I, I don't know what they would rely on other than that. Well, let me first try to dispel a notion that this was a story leaked by the administration because they felt it made them look good. Look good. Uh, as with other stories, several of the stories I've done, including the one on the economic sanctions, th these stories arise from really just me talking to sources and hearing something in passing that sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. And then so, well, you, following you, you could up be on talking, it, You could be talking, talking to, to the forensic companies say, uh, and people could uh, right. if people say we're actually seeing a decline, then that's worth following up on. In, in fact, I, will, I remember being at an FBI uh, press conference last fall, or fall of 2014, and hearing the then head of cyber division, Joe Demarest, uh, saying that I asked him, have the indictments on the PLA had any effect? And he said, we're, we've seen a change in behavior. And I said, oh, what do you mean? And he didn't want to elaborate. He just said, we've seen a change in behavior. And I took that to mean, well, maybe they went underground for a little bit, mm -hmm. but then they'll come back. And, you know, time went on, and I just continued along my merry way, assuming that right. these indictments really hadn't not had an impact, as most people did. Until recently, I heard from another source that, in fact, this one, the intelligence community, uh, that, in fact, surprisingly, the PLA activity had declined and had not, they had not reengaged uh -huh. in recent months. But instead, they were seeing, you know, MSS activity. So in trying to report that out, uh, I would talk to different sources within the administration and some in the industry, and not all of them wanted to 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 talk about it because this sort of information is very closely held. I did not ask, well, is it classified? Because if they say yes, then they won't talk to me. Right. But anyway, <laughs> you get the sense that so this is not the sort of thing where they are going to lay out all the technical evidence. Right. So this was not this was not like the uh, uh, the story of the uh, cyber attack on the Iranian uh, um, uh, enrichment uh, facility, which pretty clearly was a choreographed leak, or at least one that was embraced by the administration. Mm -hmm. um, though I don't know mm -hmm. how they would know other than by participating, as the FBI does, in trying to deal with a particular intrusion, uh, uh, unless, they're, right. unless they're, they've got very sensitive right. uh, sources inside the Chinese uh, uh, intelligence networks, which is quite possible. Yes, as you know, being having worked at the NSA. But, but they also point out that none of these individual agencies, be it the NSA, the FBI, uh, anyone else, has total 100% perfect visibility into the, into the picture. Well, I mean, I'm kind of struck by the yeah. specificity of the idea that PLA is out and MSS is carrying the ball. Mm -hmm. uh, because, I don't know, Tony, uh, um, how 
confident are you that you can tell the difference between an MSS that, uh, uh, attack and a PLA attack? I would have thought there'd be some differences on some attacks and a lot of overlap. Well, I think we have to, to step back to what Ellen said and think about the fact that now that this agreement is in place, as narrow as it is, you know, we're still, you know, how do you define economic, you know, cyber espionage? Can they still go after uh, a jet engine, you know, that a contractor is building for the U.S. government so they can actually build it to compete with the U.S. military? Right. So, so that, that it's, it's hard to define that. On the other side of that, uh, you know, some of that stuff in their five-year plan, they still want, you know, more than likely they'll still go after. So, but they're also going to change tactics and go much more stealthy. In the past, the Chinese, especially the PLA, was very brazen. There was no attribution. So, and if the front door was open, then they didn't actually use sophisticated methods to steal the data. Did you, do you think the MSS has always been better at this than the PLA? That the PLA was just sort of throw numbers at it and see what they get back? Well, certainly the PLA was throwing numbers at it. And with MSS, I, I'm not sure at this point, as we put together more data sets on it, you know, we'll, we'll have a better picture in the future on that. But uh, they certainly, you know, have changed tactics, and much like the Russians have done in the past, uh, much more stealthy and don't want to get caught. So I think it's going to be interesting over the next 6 to 12 months. Yes. Well, you know, that, that to my mind, that's actually a, a real victory because if you have to be stealthy, you have to spend a lot of time covering your tracks that you're not spending just exfiltrating data by the gigabit. Uh, and um, uh, one of the surprising and disappointing aspects of Chinese uh, cyber espionage was just how successful they were being completely unstealthy, uh, and it was changing the standards for the Iranians and the North Koreans and a whole bunch of other people uh, uh, who either just emulated them or um, hid behind the fact that the Chinese were so noisy that everybody assumed it was the Chinese. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to see, you know, uh, uh, you know, PLA you know, active duty members actually chasing reporters down the street again in the future, you know, right. much like after APT-1, you know, came out. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, the activity is going to continue in that stealthy manner, much more underground, with a much higher level of sophistication causing our intel apparatus and many companies to actually re-examine, you know, the data to see who shifted over from the PLA to MSS. Uh, scarier yet, who actually went into the underground instead and now is going to utilize those skill sets to do other things that we hadn't thought about that typically came from organized crime in Russia in uh, the former Eastern Bloc Europe uh, uh, region versus what we're seeing out of Asia Pacific. So it's, I think it's going to change the game. And um, what uh, what do you think now, Ellen, is the consensus on whether it was the uh, indictments that triggered this change of direction? Well, again, I I don't think the and the I don't think the administration would say it was the indictments alone right. that triggered the change in behavior, but that they they did have a more significant impact than was commonly assumed. Well, not. that wouldn't have been hard. Right. It, lot, I heard from lots of people who, who mocked the uh, the whole idea. I, I mm-hmm. always thought there might be some value, and Jim Lewis, who you quoted, mm-hmm. uh, has also some decent sources inside uh, the Chinese uh, um, uh, cyber attack uh, infrastructure, and he thought that it was having an impact. Uh, um, in fact, I think he... he said on this program uh, uh, that um, it made the PLA a figure of fun in the interagency. And, of course, they have an interagency just like we do, and uh, being a figure of fun is, uh, you know, coming from DHS, I know how that feels. (laughs) (laughs) And let's not underestimate uh, President Xi himself, who I think really, really, cared about cares about China's standing in the world and did not want to let as you said the cyber issue become a major irritant or, or fester and and put at risk other other issues in in the re- relationship uh and so my understanding is with his knowledge or even at his direction he wanted the PLA to undertake a review of their hacking activities to really see what is all this commercial I, I, you know I, I going on. there really are two military models in mm-hmm. the world today and there's the western military model which is very like Grand Mouette in France you know that it's very top down disciplined organized 
war, fighting a war, period. Rule of law. Yeah, and then there's a kind of Asian model in which every general has a lot of leeway to do procurement and to carry out activities uh, and to extract rent from the beneficiaries of those activities so that uh, um, what was described as moonlighting PLA hackers might have been generals telling Mm -hmm. their folks to go out and do cyber espionage, which would then be sold for the benefit of the general. And if you're she... uh, you don't want that. You don't want these guys to have an independent source of income. You don't want them resisting your commands because they're not as profitable as the old commands. Uh, um, so you can see how he might actually have an interest in cutting back on the moonlight. But how much influence in the end he will actually wield and how long this will take is, is anybody's guess. I don't think it's something that's going to happen overnight or not even within the term of this administration. So uh, the other thought that occurs to me uh, is that um, uh, the Chinese government, once they'd made this decision, whatever decision, well, at a minimum, the decision to condemn commercial cyber espionage, which they clearly did. They did it for the President Obama and immediately did it for Merkel, did it for Cameron, did it for the mm-hmm. entire G20, which must be 85 or 90 percent of global GDP. Um, they, they obviously had made a policy choice that they were going to uh, accede to this as a principle that everybody could get behind. Uh, uh, and my guess is if the G20 latched onto this as quickly as it did, uh, there were a lot of people who were upset with the PLA's hacking. It's not like it was just the United States. Right. I, I think that uh, what you saw with the consensus on this norm against commercial hacking or commercial espionage at the G20 shows that you've, you've and kudos to Chris Painter and, and, and the State Department, in a sense, for working this issue for so long, and they finally got to a community of like-minded nations that could agree um, I, I think it's it's, it's, it's 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 everybody with an economy that matters. Uh, right. So it's not it's not so much they got a like minded uh, that the U.S. government created this group of like minded uh, uh, countries. I think the PLA created it by hacking everybody. Uh, well, one of the yeah. the nations that was in this group is, is France, which, as you know, <laughs> it's also accused of being a uh, a country that does commercial espionage. Well, I think they obviously so. ran the math and decided they were net losers, uh, and, right. and it was time to change sides, which they're good at. Um, uh, yeah, you you saw it. Uh, uh, I'm sure outside of the United States. Yeah, absolutely. As you stated, you know, definitely all of the G20 members, and believe it or not, uh, you know, some of my trips overseas, we saw them in Thailand and Taiwan and South Mm -hmm. Korea and Japan, uh, Singapore, everywhere. So India, you know, with some major campaigns. So I think that, uh, you know, uh, probably the Chinese were looking at this thinking it could be us against the world, you know, on this topic. And, you know, good time to to make those changes. And for that, you know, I think the U.S. deserves some credit for keeping this as a live issue in front of other governments and giving them a a forum to express solidarity against China in a way that finally got China's attention. So uh, what that says to me, I mean, actually, here's a a question. uh, Let me ask uh, Ellen. Uh, Do you think that at the end of the day, this story is going to become an excuse to never impose sanctions? Or do you think that the imposition of sanctions gets easier because the Chinese president has said, we don't believe in doing that kind of thing. I think it will depend on the behavior and the evidence, because you'll need two things. You'll need a violation of the pledge, Mm -hmm. and you'll need the evidence that they violated the pledge that that you can take to them or that could stand up in court, essentially. And, uh, you know, gathering the evidence is is not easy. Um, No. Not at all. But it's... Yes and no, right? Mm -hmm. Tony, you guys know what a PLA or an MSS intrusion looks like. And sure, people can fake it, but uh, after a while, uh, you say, well, they're doing such a good job of faking it, they're only looking for things the Chinese want. Uh, At that point, you start to think maybe they're not faking it. Uh, uh, So I, I wonder if you couldn't build a case just out of the evidence that you find inside somebody's network. 
I think you probably could, you know, uh, over a period of time and, and, you know, while working in tandem, you know, with other companies and government to make sure you're looking at all angles and, you know, uh, all pieces of data, you know, um, setting aside, of course, what the government would, wouldn't share in an, in open court. Uh, but I think you could. So I, 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 last, last week I gave a uh, speech to the AVA in which I uh, uh, said lawyers have a role in deterring commercial cyber espionage because once you have the evidence you need, even if it's in classified form, you can use it for a sanctions program, mm-hmm. and then you can uh, use the judgment in the sanctions program as potentially collateral estoppel to bring a lawsuit, and there are mm-hmm. multiple lawsuits, including the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, uh, where you could sue not just the people who hacked you, but the people they were conspiring with to extract the secrets. So um, I, I think that we will see lawsuits in the next five years. Mm-hmm. What's interesting out of this is that uh, uh, now you might be able to enforce those judgments in at least 19 of the G20. Exactly. It's, it's going to be fascinating to watch because I also have to wonder, you know, uh, we see from our own analysis, our last report, 205 days of undetected activity typically before, you know, a breach is reported and before activity. And that's, that's down from, from, from it earlier is. years. It so. is, it, but that number is much higher for some less mature nations. So you, you have to wonder, though, if for those that were MSS or PLA breaches related to economic espionage, even for those in the G20 that are undetected, uh, do they pull out of those right away, or do they actually continue mm. to actually exfiltrate data very quietly, you know, and getting what they want before they actually pull out? So and then it, and then argue, oh, that's just infrastructure we left yeah. behind. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, here, Judge, go ahead and strip it out. Uh, <laughs> yes. So the, uh, but you know, luckily you don't have to accuse them of breaking this pledge since the pledge was made. You know, if, this is if true. it's a violation of the CFAA, it's a violation of the CFAA, whether it was four years ago or last month. Uh, uh, so the other two other things I just wanted to cover quickly. Uh, um, the, um, the I think you had a story suggesting that uh, the Chinese thought that the problem was OPM uh, and yes. they went out and arrested <laughs> some uh, uh conveniently non-government hackers that they blamed for the OPM hack, uh, uh, and then were sort of surprised that the U.S. government kept talking about other things. Uh, um, uh, where does that stand? Have we heard anything more I, since that announcement that they've made arrests? To the best of my knowledge, it ha- we, there, there hasn't been any resolution. Uh, I, I've been trying to learn more about what the Chinese have done, if anything, and my sources have not been able to give me any anything solid. So, pretty ironic I since they know. said they did it because we asked, uh, but now right. they have sort of yeah. ceased to provide information about the uh, uh, the uh, supposed uh, yeah. guilty parties. Uh, it's Rule 6E, of course, of course. That always worked for the FBI. Like, you, know, you, you couldn't get anything out of them uh, uh, if, if they didn't want to give it to you because it was all grand jury or there was a grand jury in, in, in there somewhere, uh, sort of like a pony in there somewhere. Uh, um, yep. I, I was just going to say, Stuart, you know, that, that one's fascinating to me that they would pick that one to take action on. And, and of course, you know, we may never know what's being done to those individuals. Mm-hmm. So and if they were actually responsible for it. But why pick one that many, you know, former U.S. government officials talked about was definitely nation-state espionage, and that's not part of the agreement. Why wouldn't you pick one against a U.S. Well, company? The, the, the fact is, it's it did, it, you know, if you were watching the political scene here, it yeah. had enormous impact. It was yes. politically difficult for uh, the administration. It continues to be a source of considerable tension. So uh, it, it, it's true. It was not what the administration was pushing as a, as a norm, and and the administration made some, uh, you know, unfortunate uh, statements about how, yeah, more credit to them. Um, <laughs> it, it, but I think it, it, they were right to think it was actually a, a big irritant in the relationship. Uh, so uh, they weren't stupid to have arrested these guys and said it wasn't us at all. It was right. these kids. Well, okay. they were saying yes, it wasn't government. It wasn't the government. Wasn't the government, right? right? But I, I think there's still debate inside the government as to whether it was really MSS or MSS contractors or to what degree. They picked the the hack that we are least likely to believe was not government related. Yes. Fair enough. Clearly, nobody else 
is using this or has right. any particular use for this information. Right. So uh, it almost certainly was for the government, if not right. by the government. Uh, uh, last, uh, uh, we are told that there was a moderately successful uh, cabinet-level meeting uh, between the U.S. Uh, the representatives, DHS, uh, uh, Justice Department, and the state security minister from China, coming up with uh, what proposals for tabletop exercises and uh, some procedures for asking for help in mm-hmm. future investigations. Exactly. Uh, and continued dialogue, but no real, you know, major... Um, yeah, that's, that, 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 sounds, that sounds like procedural. kind of the next step yeah. Two years ago, before right. uh, uh, we accused the Chinese of doing all this hacking and uh, Snowden fled to Hong Kong, uh, we were on the verge of doing this anyway, and now it looks like we're back to normal. Right. I mean, and if anything, it's it's also going to uh, create new challenges for the government or for the Obama administration or continued challenges as the Chinese are now going to want to uh, ex- or expect the United States to try to be more cooperative in giving over information oh, yeah. and they're, content they're, they're to they're the Chinese. Say, you know, greatfire.org is telling lies about exactly. us online. It's a violation of our national Internet security. security. Yeah. Uh, you've got to do something about exactly. it. Yeah. So uh, I, I have no doubt that they'll manage to make that whole process extremely fraught and mm-hmm. uh, full of reciprocity that we don't want to uh, mm-hmm. engage in. Uh, all right. Well, I, we're coming to the end. I usually ask uh, our guests if they have any speeches or uh, events or stories or reports coming up that they'd like to tell our listeners about. Uh, uh, Tony? Yeah, uh, the one we talked about earlier, Stuart, I'll mention that um, speaking at RSA, I think it's going to be a really fun event. I have Deputy Undersecretary Phyllis Schneck on a panel uh, and uh, Assistant Director Jim Trainer and former Deputy Assistant Secretary Stan Lowe from Veterans Administration. And the panel at RSA is is um, is Rome Bernie while Nero fiddles. All so, right. Great. You well, that, what you, you, you've broken the code with RSA. You have to have a colorful title or you're screwed. Uh, uh, Ellen? I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm set here. You're not Thanks. going to I'm RSA? Not. Are you oh, going my, to? Am I going? Yes. I'm not sure yet. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, do we need to lobby the Washington Post about the importance <laughs> of sending you there? Because uh, I, 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 Jason and I are going to be doing a program uh, 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 out there. Uh, in fact, I think I'm done two panels, so uh, uh, we're going to move the entire podcast to uh, San Francisco. Ah. For oh, the very event. nice. That should be nice. And uh, I, a former guest, Rob Kanaki, uh, uh, asked me to promote the fact that uh, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations has a paper on cleaning up U.S. cyberspace coming out very soon, uh, making some important uh, um, international recommendations about uh, things the U.S. needs to do if it wants to be a, uh, a global leader in cybersecurity, which is certainly true. Whenever, I mean, Tony, you'll agree, uh, we are by far the the worst offender in terms of uh, being hosts of cyber attacks uh, of any country. It's not a list you want to be number one on, but we are typically. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, thank you both. It was great. Uh, thanks also to uh, Maury Shank, Michael Vadis, Jason Weinstein. Uh, uh, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, send your questions uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. You can leave a message by phone at uh, 202-862-5785. Uh, uh, and uh, if you like what you're hearing, or even if you don't, uh, go to iTunes uh, and uh, uh, call up the uh, 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 the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast and give us a review because uh, I don't know what the uh, threshold number of your reviews you have to get before they publish some uh, is, but we still haven't made it, and so I'm hoping that our listeners will get us over the hump. Uh, uh, this has been Episode 92 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be speaking to Senator Tom Cotton from the state of Arkansas about uh, uh, his proposals with respect to uh, uh, surveillance in the wake of the San Bernardino and Paris attacks. And we hope you'll join us then as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology security privacy and government.